Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're going to be talking about climate change, specifically the Global Climate Change Conference that's going on right now in Scotland. It's called COP26, and leaders from all over the world, including President Biden, are stopping by the two-week-long event to share ideas, make pledges, and negotiate strategies for taking action on climate change. Now, what does all of this have to do with Austin? After all, we tend to have a pretty local focus on this show. Well, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's not just the presidents, the prime ministers, royalty, celebrities, etc. of the world who attend these global climate conferences, which happen every year about this time, but thousands of local leaders also flock to these COPs, or Conference of Parties, which stands for the 197 nations that agreed to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change at a meeting way back in 1992. This year, Austin Mayor Steve Adler, Travis County Commissioner Bridget Jay, and representatives from the Austin-based nonprofit organization, the Rainforest Partnership, are actually all making the visit to Scotland to participate in COP26. And we're going to be hearing from some of those folks in a minute, but first I wanted to give a quick history lesson of where we are with all of these global climate conferences. So, like I mentioned, back in 1992, 197 nations signed on to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the goal of that treaty was to, quote, was to combat, quote, dangerous human interference with the climate system, end quote. And starting in 1995, a global climate conference has been held every year, except for last year because it was postponed because of COVID. And, and this year's event is known as COP26 because it's the 26th of these conferences. And some of the more noticeable COPs have included Kyoto in 1997 and Paris in 2015. And so out of these came the Kyoto Protocol, and the Paris Climate Agreement, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. So the countries that signed on to that Kyoto Protocol all agreed to cut their country's emissions to 5% below 1990 levels between 2008 and 2012. However, that Kyoto Protocol really only included industrialized nations and quote-unquote developing countries like China and India were exempted. Plus, the United States never actually ratified the treaty, so there were a lot of issues with it. And then the Paris Climate Agreement came along and effectively replaced the Kyoto Protocol. And the Paris Agreement was considered a really big breakthrough for this reason, because nearly all of the countries, world's countries, signed on, and they all made some sort of commitment to lower emissions. And the agreement set this bigger goal of not allowing more than two degrees of global warming Celsius um, by the end of this century. Now, many have said this really isn't enough and that 1.5 degrees should be more like our goal, but two degrees is certainly a step in the right direction, and quite frankly, it's way better than anything we had before. And so in order to reach this goal, the Paris Agreement asked every country to submit their own Nationally Determined Contribution, or NDC, which includes an emission reduction target and a pathway or a plan for getting there. But there were a few problems. Number one, these NDCs are voluntary, and so there's technically no punishments for a country that fails to meet its goals. And then number two, the initial NDCs that were submitted after Paris actually put us on a path towards 2.7 degrees of warming, which is more than both the 2 degree and the 1.5 degree goal. And so that's kind of where the current COP in Glasgow comes into play. So the idea here is that countries should be continuing to ramp up their goals, getting us closer to that 2 or 1.5 degree level. And in doing so, they should be applying pressure to other countries and sharing some of these updated goals, as well as the policies that they've already passed in their countries in order to achieve them. And a lot of this can be happening at COP26. 
And this is also where the local element comes into play. It's no surprise here that the U.S. has not been much of a leader lately when it comes to climate. Under President Trump, we even briefly left the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, to kind of give a little bit more of a summary here or some context, I'm just going to read a quick quote from a recent article in the New York Times that I feel like summed up where we are right now pretty well. So they wrote, quote, President Biden has said that America will cut emissions 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels in the next decade. As of now, though, few policies are in place to make that happen. The European, Euro, the European Union also made new promises to cut their emissions, roughly 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. But China, now the world's largest climate polluter, has not shifted its plan to peak emissions before 2030, a target scientists say is not adequate to keep the planet on a 1.5 degree pathway. Whether more countries come on board and whether you, the United States can actually make good on its promise will determine the trajectory of the planet. End quote. So, <laughs> as work is done on the national level to reduce emissions, local governments have a big role here to play in helping the U.S. to actually reach its goals. And Austin has long been a leader in this department. Back in 2015, actually, when the Paris Climate Agreement was signed, a large contingent of Austinites flew to France to be involved, including Mayor Steve Adler, Austin City Councilmember Leslie Poole, Travis County Commissioner Bridget Jay, as well as several representatives from South by Southwest, Houston Tilton University, our city's Electric Utility Commission, the Rainforest Partnership, and the Texas Interfaith Center for Public Policy. So lots of engagement there. And with that, that's the end of our history lesson. I want to take us into the present now. Let's go ahead and listen in on that interview I recorded earlier this month with Travis County Commissioner Bridget Shea. And just in case you're wondering, a county commissioner, it's kind of like a city council member, but for all of Travis County, which includes the city of Austin, but it also includes other towns like Pflugerville, Bee Cave, Manor, Sunset Valley, Lake Way, etc. And a quick note before we listen, um, I spoke to Commissioner Shea when she was like actually in Glasgow attending the conference, so there might be a bit of background noise, but it shouldn't be too bad. Okay, let's go ahead and give that a listen. Okay, I am here with Bridget, and and Bridget, you're all the way in, in Scotland today, right? <laughs> yes, I am. I have been for several days for the, uh, the United Nations Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland. Awesome. And so explain for people, you know, maybe they've seen some headlines, but what is the COP26? What is this climate summit? Well, well COP, uh, COP stands for Conference of Parties, and it is... Uh, the parties that were the original uh, signatures, signatories to the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, when um, the nations of the world and the United Nations really said, we, we have a crisis on our hands with climate change and we have to do something about it. I mean, it was, it was more complicated than that, but that's the gist of what they did with the Earth Summit. And they agreed they would uh, meet every so many years um, to move the ball on addressing climate change. And um, some sessions have been more effective and more successful than others. Um, and I've been going, actually, when I was on the Austin City Council, I went in 1995 as a representative of the city of Austin. Uh, and I went again in 2015 um, to the Paris Climate Summit, which was really remarkable. And I had a 20 year span to compare. Um, it was really interesting in, in 1995, 
they could not have been less interested in what the cities of the world were doing. And in 20 and in 2015, it was like the the incredible focus on cities and an acknowledgement that cities are where it's happening. It's where all, so many of the people live. And so when there's a climate disaster, it's where so many numbers of people are, are harmed or affected or killed. And it's where, you know, all the cleanup and the repair and the rebuilding takes place. So there was a real recognition in 2015 that cities of the world have a crucial role to play. Uh, and then uh, I went in 2017 in Bonn after Trump had pulled out and literally the cities and the states uh, uh, across the U.S. stepped up and said, well, Trump can do whatever he wants, but we are still in. Uh, and so I, I have a pin on that says we are still in. And it was a whole coalition of um, local elected officials across the country who stood up and said, this is too important. We can't let this uh, president basically mess everything up and set us back on addressing climate change. And, uh, and so we continued at the local level to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, to put programs in place to uh, try and better prepare people for the impacts of climate change, um, uh, to build infrastructure, to better protect our communities and all that kind of thing. And so <clears throat> this, uh, this gathering in Glasgow has been a real um, uh, sort of evolution of the role of local governments in that regard. Uh, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a really valuable place to uh, learn what other cities around the world are doing. So um, I I've, I felt like it, it was important to come representing local governments, um, but also to learn what other local governments are doing to address the, the issues they're facing, because the issues are not that different from city to city. Yeah, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting. You know, I feel like when we uh, talk about uh, these cops, um, a lot of the focus is on the international conversation and, you know, like Biden flies in and you have um, international leaders making these like big agreements. But um, there's thousands of other people who are there who are at this local level also working on things. I guess. Can you talk a little bit more about what you've been doing day to day, like the role of the, the local players? Obviously, there's a lot of like exchange of ideas and and such. And talk about kind of that 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 part of the conference. We at Travis County have made really stunning progress on reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. And part of it is doing something that virtually every place on the planet, unless it was some terribly rural area, uh, but every city on the planet had to do at the start of the pandemic. And that was go home and work from home. We adopted a, um, a policy goal at Travis County of uh, seeking to achieve having 75% of our eligible employees telecommute on a permanent basis. And by eligible, I mean employees who don't have to physically be at work to do their jobs. So like uh, corrections officers, for instance, can't telecommute. Right. <laughs> People who are working at the medical examiner's office can't telecommute. They have to physically be at their job. But uh, we have a pretty large percentage of our population um, of employees, roughly half, so about 2,600 or so, who can work remotely and, and do their, their work effectively. And so we've adopted this goal and really embraced it. And um, we've documented now over the course of um, not even a full year, um, really a, impressive savings uh, as a result of this policy. 
um, we've saved $1.3 million in our utility bills for starters, because we don't have so many people packed in the building, so we don't have to heat and cool uh, and uh, use water as much. But the, the really big savings area is in the uh, greenhouse gas emissions that are uh, used in our employee commute. So by reducing the number of employees that are commuting to and from work every day, we've, uh, we've reduced that category by at least 30%. And that was our second largest source of greenhouse gas emissions of the county. The largest was our buildings. Hmm. And so we've pretty dramatically reduced uh, greenhouse gas emissions from our buildings as well. It's about 5,500 tons of uh, CO2 emissions that we've, we've reduced by just adopting a policy of telecommuting. And my message to people here at this international gathering is if Texas can do it, you can too. But everybody had this experience at the beginning of the pandemic. So, so nobody can say now, well, gee, uh, we don't know how it would work if uh, you had large scale telecommuting, because actually we do know how it would work. We've, we've done it. Uh, or we can't, we can't really say, and unfortunately the governor of Texas said this, <laughs> that uh, people wouldn't work at home. They would watch TV or sleep or do something else. Well, we know, and Travis County, we've, we've documented it, employee productivity has increased and employee morale has improved. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you look across the board, we've saved money on our utilities. We've uh, pr impressively reduced our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we've reduced our water consumption. Um, our employees uh, uh, are more productive. They're happier. And they're saving money as well because they're not have, having to... Uh, spend uh, money on gas, driving to and from work every day. Uh, and plus we're reducing our share of, of uh, congestion, traffic congestion in the Austin region. So it's sort of a win-win-win across the board. And that's my message to other communities here as well. And um, people have been really interested in it. And they've it's sort of like a head smacker, like, wow, why didn't I think of that? So uh, we had the Travis County uh, uh, IT staff produce an infographic mm -hmm. with a little QR code on it that told the story of the results that we'd achieved through the telecommuting and a lot of representatives from other cities all over the place have been really interested in it and have taken pictures of the of the uh the qr code so that they could capture the information as well so it's things like that that are part of the value in gathering like this you can't you just can't accomplish all of that remotely mm -hmm. um so that's been part of the message that we've uh, that we've conveyed to people the other um, somewhat significant thing that we've done in Travis County, and this was part of my goal. I ran for county commissioner because I believed that we weren't doing enough as a society, that we, we weren't doing enough in Travis County to prepare people for the impacts of climate change. Um, I mean, for example, most people in Austin don't realize that we are a very high wildfire risk region. We're like fourth or fifth highest in the nation, and most people don't know that. And so um, they're not really prepared for it. And we, uh, we kind of surveyed people when I first took office and just asked what, you know, what would be useful for us to, to do. Um, and one of the, the issues that came up was, you know, we, um, we do wildfire drills in school, but we don't do them in our neighborhoods. And so people don't know what to do if there were to be a fire you know, on the weekend or in the evenings. Um, and so we did that. We looked through the literature to see if we could find something that we could build off of. And we literally couldn't find any examples of neighborhood-based fire drills. We worked for about a year with a, 
the community out at Comanche Trail because frankly, there were a lot of retirees out there who had a lot of time who could work with us. And uh, we met almost every week for a year. We, and get, we involved the sheriffs and the, the, the firefighters, the, Lake, the Travis Fire and Rescue, um, our own emergency services personnel from Travis County, a whole host of people, and then a really large number of neighbors. And, uh, and we ran the drill and we'd said to them beforehand, look, this is an experiment. We really don't know if this is going to be useful. And so one of the things we'll find out is, is this useful to you? Is this something that other communities might want to practice as well? And uh, we actually had a, a university, a UT professor in her, her class, a social science uh, survey of participants in the fire drill. And the results of the survey were really impressive. Like, like overwhelmingly people said this was valuable to them. Um, they had uh, more reassurance about what to do in case of a fire and that it helped um, create a greater sense of community. So, and, and then we won a National Association of Counties and a Texas Association of Counties award for the fire drill. So um, we're, we're creating things to better prepare people to get out of harm's way from what's coming from climate change. Um, and then doing whatever we can at the county level to work to reverse climate change. And, right. uh, and those, are, those are important stories to share here. Mm-hmm. Yes, that two-pronged approach of reducing emissions and also preparing for the reality that um, we're already seeing the impact, of course. Exactly. It's interesting, too, because, you know, I feel like especially um, in Austin, you know, the, the city gets a lot of attention, the city of Austin and what they're working on, and they've made ambitious, you know, climate roles and things like that. But the county sometimes um, don't get that attention or people don't um, recognize, I guess, the big role that the county can also play um, play here. You pointed to two examples, but um, does the county have like a, a climate wide, like a climate plan in general, congr- you know, similar to like Austin's plans or goals around emissions, I guess, you know, because then the county covers a lot more area and, and people than even the city does and, and does have a big role to play. But um, I feel like people don't always think of it that way. Right. I mean, the, the county is, um, I tell people, it's sort of like your, um, your skeletal system. You don't see it, but it's really important. <laughs> um, and people just don't have as much connection with the county. I mean, at the city, every week there's a zoning fight. Right. So every, every, every neighborhood knows about the, the city because the city has the authority over zoning. Mm-hmm. The county has no authority over zoning. Um, and so we've done a lot of work to try and get the word out about the important uh, climate work that's going on at the county. Um, So we've adopted a climate action plan. And um, our first phase was to do a greenhouse gas inventory so that we knew exactly where our greenhouse gas emissions were coming from. And then from that, you you build the plan to reduce them. Um, And part of it uh, included this, um, this telecommuting policy. We've also just recently adopted a policy to transition our fleet vehicles to electric vehicles um, because the fleet was the third highest source of the county's greenhouse gas emissions. Um, But um, we adopted a climate emergency, um, declared a climate emergency, um, and we just uh, committed the county to the race to zero that partners with the federal government um, and literally brings the, the cities and the counties and the local governments into a partnership with the federal government to document 
um, our, our uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions so that our reductions can be included with the federal reductions because the federal government can't get there alone uh, mm. to meet its commitment to the, uh, the Paris climate agreement. And they need the partnership with the, uh, with the local governments. And so um, Travis County has adopted it. I don't, think, I don't think the city of Austin has. Anyway, um, so we're, we're doing a number of initiatives and we've also, um, the city's been um, very active on uh, the concept of resilience hubs. Uh, which I think people began to understand why we would need these during the uh, <laughs> the storm. Really, it was it, it was the the state of Texas caused blackout um, because they've refused to reinforce their utility uh, grid system. ERCOT didn't cause it; <laughs> the state of Texas did. Um, but yeah, I think then people maybe started to realize in a way that they'd never really understood how climate could climate change could impact them in the past, that it can cause these catastrophic system failures, like a complete blackout of our utility system. And in the case of freezing weather, a complete loss of the functionality of the city of Austin's water system. So people's pipes froze and they couldn't get water and they're power was out and they couldn't heat their homes or turn on their lights or charge their phones. And so this notion of resilience hubs, <clears throat> which the county is partnering with the city on, would literally identify places that could act as warming shelters um, and, and places where people could go to charge their phone and get warm. And, you know, in the case of if, if your house was just way too cold and you didn't have a fireplace, you didn't have someplace you could stay, Resilience hubs could function as places where people could safely stay to ride out a, a bad storm like that. Um, one of the ideas, uh, which is part of this sort of um, exchange of best practices, uh, is something that I'd like to look into for, into for Travis County. <clears throat> the, uh, the mayor of Miami-Dade, um, Daniela Levine-Cava, a lot of people got to know her when that horrible condo building collapse mm -hmm. happened and she was on the news quite a bit. Um, but she created um, in her um, city county, the first ever chief heat officer. Mm. And uh, she, she announced here at the COP uh, that they, they were now going to um, be identifying and declaring heat seasons in Miami-Dade wow. that would start in May, yeah, start in May and run through October. And they would have, they would have cooling shelters. They would have programs to reach out into communities where uh, poor people were who might not have air conditioners, might not be able to afford to run them, that kind of thing. Uh, and they'd identify places where people could go to be cooled so that they wouldn't die from extreme heat. Um, I think increasingly uh, a number of, of places across the South in the United States will have to look at this exact same kind of policy. So I'm taking that idea from her and, um, uh, you know, definitely um, looking for opportunities for us to put in place similar kinds of programs to help better protect our residents from what's coming. Right. And this is part of that exchange of ideas you're talking about there, being able to talk to other mayors and uh, city leaders that are dealing with very similar situations. It's happening everywhere. It 
Exactly. And, and a lot of different places are coming up with very creative uh, solutions and programs to address them. And so this is that exact ca- kind of sharing of ideas and, and, uh, and creative solutions. Yeah. And so when you're looking at the outlook for Travis County, um, what do you feel like is our next steps in achieving some of our climate goals? You know, where are you looking at next? Where do you feel like is a good place for us to be focusing our, our time and energy on? Obviously you have this telecommuting program and, and things like that, but what's kind of the next frontier area we should be focusing on? Well, this is something that we've already begun leading on, uh, and I, again, I'm surprised that others, uh, and particularly in the, in the private sector, haven't um, latched on to this more. All of the climate projections, um, including the most recent uh, Texas 2036 projections that um, John Nielsen Gammon um, at um, AM just put out, make very clear this region will be much hotter and much drier. Um, and that, and 2036 is 15 years away. We're not talking about the distant future where, you know, we don't have to worry about it. Our kids or grandkids are going to have to deal with that problem. This is 15 years from now. Um, our region will be extremely hot um, and will be much drier. And so we have to start taking action now uh, to reduce and eliminate processes that uh, uh, essentially uh, cause an epic waste of water because mm-hmm. a lot of our systems now are incredibly uh, water wasteful. <clears throat> so one example that we've taken action on at Travis County is um, the, um, and most people don't realize this, but the main use of water in a large building is for air conditioning. Wow. Uh, and so, and so in Travis County, we, and, I, and I've worked on these issues, so I, I knew about it. When I, came, when I got elected to the county, I said, we, we've got we've to put this in practice. We basically swapped out the water supply for our air conditioning systems in our downtown buildings and in our jail. And instead of using treated drinking water from our drinking water reservoirs at Lake Travis and Lake Buchanan, we are now taking the treated wastewater that would otherwise be discharged downstream by the city of Austin and is uh, now being piped through what's called purple pipes uh, in, the, in the downtown area, we've hooked up to those purple pipes uh, and we have now permanently reduced the demand for almost 40 million gallons of wow. water a year from our drinking water supply. We're leaving that in the reservoir. So that will help stretch out our drinking water supply for the whole region. And I've been pushing this for a while, and I think we <clears throat> hopefully we'll get some traction at UT and who knows at the state legislature. <laughs> it's, a, it's the state government that would have to go along with this, but it's in their self-interest too. Uh, UT and the state capital complex each use somewhere around 300 to 500 million gallons of water a year, most of it for air conditioning, some for, um, some for um, sorry, there's people being loud around me. Um, some, some for, uh, you know, uh, landscaping, um, and irrigation, but almost all of it for your, for, for air conditioning. So anyway, um, I've been meeting with people at UT and, and urging them to transition to this. They've already done one central, uh, water chilling plant 
on the purple pipe water, but they haven't converted the rest of them. So I'm really pushing them to do that um, and have reached out to student groups and talked with them about it as well. Uh, and the same could happen with the, with the capital complex. But I think more and more entities, as the pressure increases on our water supply, we'll have to do this. It's just, we don't have to wait until it's a, an emergency. We can begin this process now. Um, and, uh, and I think now most of the, um, uh, all the new buildings that are being built in the city of Austin have to have water saving appliances. So that was a really important uh, infrastructure uh, improvement. So you build into your building code a requirement that every building has to be energy efficient. So you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions from that. And every building has to be water efficient as well. Low flow toilets, low flow uh, faucets, low flow shower heads, all of that sort of thing. So yeah. it's we're doing it at large building scale. Uh, but yes, that's the kind of thing that we can do now. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and you save money as well. The cost of the purple pipe water is a fraction of the treated drinking water. So it would be in your self-interest. We'll pay for the cost of the retrofits in the county in, a, in just a few years. And, and then we'll be saving money ever after that, in addition to saving all that water. Right. It makes me think of, you know, a little bit of the winter storm. It's like a lot of the things that happened there are things that we knew could happen. Right. And we had not prepared for for years and years and, and allowed to, well, to sit well, there. We and it's like we have the ability now. We know what's coming. Right. Well, and the, the, the irony is in 2011, we would mm -hmm. had a similar freeze. And all the recommendations about, you know, making sure that the uh, natural gas suppliers insulated their lines so that the moisture in the natural gas lines wouldn't freeze them up, didn't do it because they didn't have to. The state didn't require it. Mm -hmm. You know, all these things that could have been done and could have avoided um, all of that pain and cost. I mean, people are still working on remodeling their homes and their apartments because they were damaged so badly by burst pipes. Right. And, and at least 87 people in Austin died. 87 people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we have an absolute moral duty uh, to address these issues and make sure it doesn't happen again. But yeah. unfortunately the legislature did almost nothing in, in regard to the actions that they could and should have taken um, mm -hmm. to prevent uh, a future collapse of the power grid and um, the ensuing chaos and death that happened. Yeah. I, I want to talk some about, you know, our future. You know, I think when, when um, I've been reading about what's happening there in Scotland and, and COP26 and some of the headlines are encouraging and other headlines are discouraging. And, you know, I feel like as someone that's been involved in climate um, for a while, it's just like, it can be hard to continue to have hope that we're, we're doing something. <laughs> and, um, but I guess I'm wondering like kind of where you're at now, like what, what do we have hope for? What do we have to push for? You know, like when you're, I'm sure it's energizing to be around a lot of people there who all care about this and, and are proving at some point that we haven't forgotten about the issue. Cause sometimes it feels that way. It's like, is anyone doing anything? <laughs> I just wonder like more emotionally or like how, how is it being there and how are you feeling about this? Well, I, I am uh, relentlessly optimistic. I've been at this for 33 years. And if, uh, and if I was going to be easily discouraged, I would have stopped it a long time ago. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think most people 
uh, have a a pretty uh, real sense now of the seriousness of this issue and that this is not a hoax and that uh, they will be affected. I mean, I came to Texas in 1988 to fight climate change. It was Dr. James Hansen's testimony to Congress in, in the summer of 1988 that um, I, it literally changed my life. I dropped what I was doing and I, I came to Texas because uh, a statewide environmental organization was getting started here called Clean Water Action. And they were uh, going to help Jim Hightower if he ran against Phil Graham for U.S. Senate. And I said, sign me up. Uh, I can't think of a, a worthier fight. Um, and so I've tacked uh, back and forth a lot over 33 years to try and uh, um, really move the needle on, on, on fighting climate change. And I really, it was, it was the the thoughts about what my children would do that got me back into elective office. Cause I realized as, as local governments, as, as community leaders, nowhere were we doing enough to prepare people for what was coming, the impacts of climate change uh, or to work to reverse it. And I, and I believe strongly we can do two things at once. <laughs> we can simultaneously fight to reverse climate change and prepare people for what's coming. So um, that, that was really sort of a driving um, a passion for me in, um, in running for office. And I feel like we've really had an impact. Um, uh, we've taken action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a meaningful way. We have uh, um, taken actions to dramatically uh, uh, reduce our epic waste of water. <laughs> Uh, and use recycled, treated wastewater. Um, at, a, at a regional level, um, I've worked to dramatically improve our emergency notification system. Um, one of the things that has happened in California in particular uh, with the Paradise Fire, 85 people burned to death in their mm. cars. And mm. part of the reason was because they didn't get the notification that they needed to evacuate. And so I started looking at our emergency notification system here, which is a 10 county region and is governed by the um, Capital Area Council of Governments. It's known by the acronym CAPCOG. Um, and uh, when I first got information about it, um, it looked like they had about half a million phone numbers in their database just for Travis County. And I said, this is really impressive. You, you have really a lot of numbers in here. How did you get so many? And they said, oh, we just swept all the landlines in when we started the system. To which I said, I know. I said, uh, do we know how many of these are still good? I mean, I'm sure half a million people in Austin still don't have landlines. And they said, uh, uh, well, uh, we need to move on in the meeting. We have other things we've got to discuss. And it took me several months just to get them to pay attention. And part of the way I did it was I just went to their technical staff and said, can you run an audit of these numbers? I suspect a lot of them go to call centers and um, large employers or government buildings. And so they did an audit by address. And guess what percentage of that half a million plus phone numbers went to about a dozen or so large employers and call centers? Any, any guesses what percentage? I can't imagine, but very high, more than 50%. <laughs> 75%. Wow. 
which is pointless yes. for a, an emergency notification system. Exactly, right. So it's a useless <laughs> uh, emergency notification system. You're not reaching anybody. And so I worked for another several months uh, with a, a committee of people from the, the CAPCOG, other elected officials, uh, to try and, and see what we could do to, to, to move the needle and get more people to sign up. And after about six months, it was clear we'd hardly move the needle. So uh, we looked for other ways that we could uh, get more people on the system. And we're now working uh, through a, a basically an, a, a contract agreement with uh, a vendor to just get the cell phone numbers in the region. So each month we're getting new cell phone numbers, which means people who move to the area newly or who are visiting, if there's a flash flood, they need to know about it. Right. And now they will. We've improved, we've improved the reach of the emergency notification system from 7% to above 70%. Wow. So it will actually help save lives. So it's a whole kind of parfait of different things. Um, and all of it is to increase our preparedness and our resilience. But I think we're, we, you know, the, every day there's a new challenge. We've, we've got to do more uh, to better prepare people. And, and, the, and the thing I say is, this is a really just straight up math problem. There are not enough first responders or firefighters or ambulances to rescue everyone. And we saw that with the freeze. Mm -hmm. It was painfully clear with the freeze that that was the case. So people need to know what to do so they can take care of themselves and get themselves out of harm's way. Um, <laughs> one example of it is at the beginning of the freeze, I don't know if, if how many people got this notification, but I did. And it was a, it was a notice from the uh, Austin Police Department. And they said, stop calling 911. You're crashing the system. It's like, well, people are calling 911 because they need help. <laughs> so <clears throat> those are just those are just a few of the kind of structural things mm -hmm. um, that we we can improve. And we have I've, I'm. I'm really proud of the, the work that we've done to make our emergency notification system more effective mm -hmm. uh, and to reduce our epic waste of water and to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and, and there's lots more to do. I think the resilience hub concept is going to be an important one, both with extreme heat and extreme cold and deadly weather of all kinds. Yeah. And so what about for, you know, for Travis County residents, Austinites, um, what can we be doing if, you know, for folks that are interested in climate change, concerned about climate change? Um, what can we be doing to get more involved in this work, to push our elected officials, to be involved in community initiatives? Like what advice do you have for um, residents? Uh, well, I'm going to start a, um, a regular kind of Facebook live um, to kind of update people on what is going on and to give people uh, more information about how they can get plugged in. But um, we, uh, uh, this is another thing I've initiated. Um, we've just started a partnership with Nextdoor, hmm. um, the, the social media system that's based on neighborhoods. And uh, we'll be partnering with them to get more information uh, out to people about how to prepare when there's a flash flood warning or when there's um, a fire danger uh, alert or when there's, you know, a tornado alert or whatever. Um, uh, and we will also be beginning, we're, we're at the very early stage of it, um, a, a kind of a community component for our climate action plan. Um, and that's the piece that's 
that's really kind of in its infancy, but the intent is to engage the public um, in Travis County. And, and it's, a, it's a large land area outside the city. The county is still literally a several thousand square miles uh, across the county with 21 small cities in Travis County. <laughs> not including the city of Austin. Right. So uh, we're just now uh, beginning. We've, we've been focusing internally on, you know, understanding our own sources of greenhouse gas emissions and putting programs in place to reduce them. And, and we're now at that stage where we're saying, okay, now we're ready to, to reach out into the community and try and identify, you know, how the community can plug into this. Um, but I'm uh, actively uh, engaged with community organizations um, I, I love what uh, Go Austin, Vamos Austin, Gava has been doing uh, around this. They've done some really interesting kind of, um, you know, climate resiliency um, initiatives within um, very poor communities in Southeast uh, Austin area. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a huge, absolute need. Uh, and that's been a really interesting theme here at, at the climate conference as well as is the focus on climate justice. Um, mm because it's the, it's the poorest in the community, uh, often the communities of color that are hurt the worst uh, by climate change and, and, and they did the least to cause it. Mm-hmm. So there's a real recognition here. It's been, it's been very interesting uh, how that's a, a, a huge focus. Um, but um, the other really interesting thing, because this is now my fourth conference of parties since 1995 till now, I have never sensed so much urgency mm. as I do now. I think there's a, 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 a realization of how frightening uh, and, and uh, literally world ending this is. And that it doesn't matter if you uh, had your feelings hurt because you didn't, you know, uh, they didn't pronounce your name properly or whatever. We have to just get past all of these petty differences and really focus on how to solve the problem as a global community, because it's killing us as a global community and it will just get worse. So there's a really profound sense of urgency around it. And there's also, you know, there are a lot of uh, young people um, uh, who have been very vocal. The work of Greta Thunberg has been incredibly important. And I think she's galvanized so many young people to just say, you know, maybe you can't vote yet, but you can, you can strike, you can walk out of your school classroom to say, no, we're not going to just continue to live our lives as if nothing was happening. We've got to, to change what we're doing and we have to demand that the leaders uh, take action to solve this and do it quickly. So there's a really powerful sense of that. And, uh, and I, 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 I am ecstatic about it. I've been working on it for 33 years. Yeah, that's a good thing to hear. I really sense this level of urgency. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's great. I, I, um, I, I know we're just about at our time here. I don't want to hold you up. I'm sure you've got lots, uh, lots of fun things to do. There are people to meet. Um, I guess any closing thoughts, anything else you feel like would be helpful to know? How much longer are you staying there? I come back on, uh, on the 5th, the morning I fly out the morning of the 5th. I don't get into Austin until the evening of the 5th. Um, you know, some people are crabby about, you know, why are you doing this? And you're wasting taxpayer money. It's important for people to know, I'm, I'm paying for all of this myself. The taxpayers are not paying for this. And the reason I'm doing it is because I feel so strongly that this is 
the most important thing I can do. So um, I want to set that record straight and just, you know, push that silly issue to the side. Uh, and then there are people just being cranky about, you know, why don't you fix problems at home or whatever? Well, that's what I'm doing here because mm -hmm. many of the problems at home are caused by climate change. Uh, and uh, this is sort of a gathering of the, of the, the, the most creative thinkers around how to address these issues. And, um, and it's encouraging to see how much focus there is on the local level, both the mm. need for local action um, and the opportunity for local communities to help come up with, with new solutions. So it's not just like, oh, that's a nice um, you know, proclamation that you made. Isn't that nice? No, it's actually necessary. And we can't just sit back and say, well, let the federal government take care of that problem. No, the federal government needs us to be actively engaged and needs all the residents of our communities to be actively engaged. So I just feel like this is, um, this is really a, a call to action. I don't know if it was Prince Charles, but someone here said, this, this is like, we are under wartime footing. That's, that's the level of, of the need for action and the level of concern. This, this, we are in a war. And that's Travis County Commissioner Bridget Shea. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Roshan or Rosie Khan, who is the team lead for Gen Z for the Trees with the Rainforest Partnership, which is an Austin-based nonprofit organization. And she's also a UT student. Okay, let's listen in on that interview. Okay, I'm here with Rosie, and we are talking all about the UN Climate Conference. And so um, you actually just got back from Glasgow, what, like yesterday or something? Yep, last night. Awesome. And so you were there um, at that Global Climate Conference as part of the Rainforest Partnership. Can you talk about your role with them? Because you're, I didn't realize you're a UT student. You're talking to me on, from campus right now. Yeah, that's right. So um, my role with Rainforest Partnership is as the team lead of Gen Z for the Trees, which is the youth branch of the organization. And what do you all do? Um, so Gen Z for the Trees was launched in June 2020, actually on World Rainforest Day, which is June 22nd. And we have a basically a mission and a vision of net zero deforestation by 2030. And we do that by our three pillars, which is um, educate, inspire, and change. So we're on a mission to basically educate students about the importance of rainforests and all the different factors that are influencing climate change and deforestation, which we're generally not taught about in schools. And then to inspire people with a more optimistic narrative and an empowering narrative that sort of pushes back against climate defeatism, that kind of all the negative psychology that goes along with like alarmist headlines, it really encourages people to disengage. And we want to encourage people to stay engaged and stay activated and just be more in the know about all that positive work that's being done. And the third pillar of change is empowering ourselves to actually engage in activism, research and advocacy. Awesome. And so you've been doing a lot of that work um, on campus, like with fellow university students? Not really, actually. So we're a global program and we have people um, all throughout the country and the globe and we mostly work virtually. So my fellow team lead, Jamie, actually we hadn't met one another in person until about a week ago, even though we've known each other and been working together for almost a year and a half. So we're a digital organization and there have been other um, UT Austin students 
who are also working at RP and so I've also been working with them, but um, we aren't like a UT student org or anything like that. Got it. So it's a lot of social media, digital communication, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we have like our Slack workspace and a shared drive and we do put all of our research and our meetings on there. Awesome. Okay. And so you were just in Scotland for the COP26 climate conference. Uh, I have to assume you've never been to one of these before. That's right. This is my first COP. <laughs> yeah. So what was it like? That's that's pretty exciting. Uh, quite a cool opportunity to get to go and, and be around so many people who are passionate about the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It was really a wonderful experience. Um, just very very overwhelming in terms of everything that was going on. Um, we were there for several days and we got to meet a lot of different um, powerful youth activists, which was wonderful and just meeting them in person and then being able to follow up and build coalitions with them for a call to action campaign, which I can tell you about in a second. Um, we met different um, members of the United States government working in the office on climate change. And so we're reaching out to them to connect with them because we're a group of youth that really know a lot about forests and the drivers of deforestation because we have four teams that research beef, palm oil, soya, and timber pulp and paper and laws and policies and finance. So we want to work with the Biden administration on their recently announced plan to conserve global forests and critical carbon sinks. We also met people from the world of private finance who are looking to change the way that forests are valued in, in terms of their valuation to accurately reflect how valuable they are kept standing. Um, and then let's see, we also met different people from companies that are big in the commodities with the forest risk commodity supply chain. So like Unilever, Nestle and Mars. Um, and yeah, like I've been to some conferences before, like in high school, I was once in the South by Southwest student expo. It was like this big hall and it's like science fair style where all these tables and exhibitions, but the cop was really like incredible because all of these different countries and their pavilions and NGOs came together and it was really cool to explore. But that's not to say the COP was perfect. There were a lot of like issues with accessibility um, and long lines and things like that. Yeah. And so you mentioned, so you were able to meet a bunch of people and people who are in positions of power to talk about some of the initiatives you're working on. You mentioned one of them. Do you want to talk a little bit more about in particular what you're trying to push there? And I guess you said you also interacted with other youth activists on this. Yeah. So we were both in the blue zone, which is where the pavilions are. Um, and then on the morning of that Friday, we participated in the youth march. And so that was super exciting. Um, so one of our main campaigns with Gen Z for the Trees is, um, well, yeah, I'll tell you more about our palm oil research afterwards, but our main current campaign is just a call to action to end deforestation by 2030. And the target is grocery store companies and restaurants and food uh, companies. And the reason that is, is because they're the sort of end of the supply chain before commodities reach um, individual households as consumers. And people always talk about voting with your dollar but that puts a lot of the burden on individual shoppers, picking up individual items, putting them in their basket to check whether it's sustainably produced or not. And so we're calling on grocery store companies and restaurant companies to make a commitment and then take actions toward eliminating deforestation from their supply chains in the way their policies are around procurement. And so what kind of traceability, what kind of transparency do they require? What kind of traceability do they require? And how do they you know, engage with roundtables and engage with their suppliers to work towards procuring commodities like beef, soya, palm oil, and timber, pulp and paper for packaging purposes um, from like sources that are not driving deforestation. 
Got it. And so I think this is another thing that people might not be as familiar with. Um, but we obviously have the meat industry is a big driver of deforestation. I think more people know that, but even a lot of packaged goods, like I know, I feel like I've read before that like Oreo cookies have palm oil and a lot of like Nabisco products are just like very things you wouldn't necessarily think of it have this palm oil ingredient that is driving deforestation in, in all over the world. Is that accurate or it, it can, it's in lots of things, right? Yeah. Sorry. If you hear the bell going off, that's the UT tower. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so palm oil is, there's a statistic that it says it can be found in about half of all packaged products in a grocery store. The reason that is, and I could give a whole talk on palm oil, um, but it's a really versatile vegetable oil. So it's used as an ingredient in all kinds of things as palm oil um, for cooking oil. And then in like snacks, things like Oreos and Nutella and so on. And also palm kernel oil is used in cosmetics like makeup, um, toothpaste, shampoo, and stuff like that. It's even used in dog food. Um, and I heard this from the uh, North America head for the RSPO who were connected with um, from a long time ago that they use it to lubricate the kibble in dog wow. food. So you, yeah, they, the RSPO has been wanting to get um, PetSmart to engage with them because they are a big distributor of like dog food that has palm oil in it. So it is driving deforestation globally, but especially in Southeast Asia. So Indonesia and Malaysia make up the vast majority of the palm oil supply uh, in the industry. Right. And this was a big year, actually, for forest and deforestation action at the COP26. Um, I think that was one of the first announcements to come out of the the new cop. Can you give a little bit of uh, a brief update? I know you're, you know, I don't want to put you on the, on the spot on what they've been working on, but since you were there, um, what are kind of some of the big announcements that we saw come out of uh, COP26 about forestry in particular? Right. So um, we were kind of amazed and excited to see that on Monday, um, before we had even gotten in, because we got in on Tuesday night, um, there was this Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forests and Land Use, and it was signed by over 100 countries, um, although I believe Indonesia and Brazil might have backpedaled a little bit, so that's kind of concerning, that basically it's a pledge by over 100 countries to stop deforestation by 2030, and they have like a six-step program on how they're going to do that by tackling the different angles from which um, currently we are incentivizing deforestation. So it was really exciting for us because we didn't come, we didn't plan to come to the COP to see this happen. But when it did, we were thrilled because we were like Gen Z for the Trees was created a year and a half ago with this vision of net zero deforestation by 2030. And now, you know, we're coming to the COP and everyone is saying that this is what the goal should be and this is what the goal is um, and kind of speaking our language. And so it's great because we no longer have to talk to people about why forests matter for the world and encourage them to make that first step in that commitment because all these governments are on board with it now. A lot of companies actually already have this in uh, as a commitment already. So now the conversation is about how do you actually achieve that goal of stopping deforestation by 2030. And there's a lot of elements in their plan as well or in their pledge about um, restoration of lands. So on the tails of this Glasgow Leaders Declaration on the Monday, um, the United States has announced a plan to conserve global forests and critical carbon sinks. Um, and so we listened to John Kerry talk about that in person. He was standing like right in front of me um, and then several other members of his team. And so they also have like a four pronged approach to incentivize conservation and restoration, to mobilize finance, um, to increase capacity and to increase ambition. And they're planning to restore, 
either 100 or 200 million hectares by 2030 and work with indigenous groups and work with um, the Forest Investors Club. So it's they have said it's a whole of government approach. And speaking as a US citizen born and raised in Texas, where we don't have any tropical rainforests, but just someone who really cares about nature and um, has been studying abroad uh, and has studied abroad in the rainforest in the past, it's really exciting to see and to hear that we're going to have a whole of government approach um, to protecting forests because um, I have interned in the past in the federal civil service with the government accountability office this past summer. So I know how complex it can be to get all of the US agencies to communicate and work together. But um, this is United States policy now. And that is kind of a great sign for Gen Z for the Trees' vision that now it's a shared vision and mission. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've talked a lot about trees. I want to talk a little bit about the, the Gen Z component of the work you've been doing. You know, I feel like uh, there's been a growing movement at these climate conferences and in the global climate conversation in general of being more youth-led and you're seeing a lot more youth activists kind of get more attention and, and really be pushing the hardest for action. And at the same time, you know, I'm, you also hear from some of those activists who feel like, you know, people just use them to, to be like, look, we care about the children or we care about, and then just continue doing nothing. Right. And so I feel like it must've been very interesting for you to be at a place like this, where I feel like everyone is looking to be like, yes, we want to support youth activists, but you also have to be in that place of, well, we have to actually do the things we're talking about here. You know, we, we have to deliver, I, I guess I don't really know what my question is, but I'm wondering just kind of how you grapple with that, of this thing of, you know, there's like, seems to be all this attention and eyes on youth led and that's the buzzword, but making sure that it's actually happening. Right. And that like, you're, uh, really getting to do that and, and not just being used and abused for like, Hey, we, we listen to young people and now go away. (laughs) Yeah. That's a big part of the conversation about youth and climate activism is the tokenization of youth Mm -hmm. and faces and voices and climate action. But we're like, where's the actual results and where, where are we training people to understand all of this? Where's the accessibility when it comes to inviting people to these conferences, um, even making sure that they, understand the way the negotiations work and what all the acronyms mean because no one teaches us these things in high school or very rarely right so um it was really really cool for me to for one thing okay many things but i'm really grateful to reinforce partnership for kind of putting their money where their mouth is and bringing so many young people on their delegation so it was myself and i recently turned 20 jamie zaya um she's 23 and nia gorbanova is also 23 and our delegation was a, was a team of six so half of us were you know people in their 20s um and so that really is you know actually bringing youth to the table to experience it and to be a part of the cop but I'm coming from a position of privilege being in the United States um, and having had access to all this education, all these resources and technology and internet and things like that. Um, And people from the global South, um, you know, people, indigenous communities, especially from Latin America, from Africa, from Southeast Asia that are affected and have their tropical rainforest um, are not, you know, it's much harder for them to come to the COP in a place that's very dominated by these like Western interests and ideologies about like continuing to grow in a lot of greenwashing and not really talking about, you know, like reparations or how we can do like climate adaptation and mitigation for the most affected people in areas. And so 
the first thing is that it was really cool that I was able to be there. Um, but obviously we need a lot more people than just like a few, a few kids from the United States. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, and I'm gonna refer to something I heard someone else say on a panel because she was very wise. Um, she was a 26 year old from Sudan. Her name was Nasreen El Sain. And she was saying that the reason a lot of youth are frustrated is because we, we're not stupid. We just need to be given um, information that is accessible to us because most of us are full-time students or we're, most of us are working or graduate students or both all of the above everything. And it's a big challenge for us to juggle school and activism at the same time. Um, and so she said that some, the reason so many of us are frustrated and she put it really clearly is that we see people making pledges when, for when they're not going to be around anymore. We see people making pledges for when their, their term of office will be over and they'll be gone or you know, even beyond their lifetime. If you're making a pledge for 2070 and you're an elderly states person, you're not gonna be around to see the year 2070. And so how can we possibly believe that you're gonna be able to deliver on your promises if you're not gonna be in power or alive anymore? So one of the things that I'm thinking about now is in every conversation with any co- corporate or government executive or other youth to talk about what is going to happen in the next three years for the Biden administration, for example in their term limit while they're here, while they're in this seat, what is it that they're going to do? Because this is when they can do it. And we want to see their action. We want to see the results and the impact um, coming from them while Mm -hmm. they're still in power. Because if the United States has a plan to protect global forests, but it has an end goal of 2030, well, Biden and his team don't know what's gonna happen after they leave office, right? So we need them to basically really deliver on their promises um, in the next couple years. you know, in the next couple months, actually, I want to know what it is that they're going to be starting with in those first steps on this long journey towards a very good goal. Right. Making short-term goals as well as long-term goals to ensure that accountability. I mean, I think that it's something you see all the time. I, I do a lot of, cover a lot of city politics and we also have long-term goals and it is that kind of thing where you tend to push them back when you know until you have until 2030, which isn't that far away, but it feels far away. Uh, to achieve something, there's a tendency for those initiatives to get put on the back burner until it's it's quite frankly too late to to enact the kind of massive change that needs to be needs to be passed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there was another activist, really briefly. Um, his name was Eric, and he was from Kenya, and he was speaking. Sorry, should I say that again? Uh, yeah. Let's just yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and there was another activist we were listening to on a panel from UNICEF. His name was Eric and he was from Kenya. Um, and he also talked about how you know he was able to come here because of his privilege and how he can speak good English and things like that. But he has this very good phrase. I don't know if he coined it or if he's quoting someone else, but there should be no about me without me. And so the point was there shouldn't be all these negotiations about what the climate is going to look like and how many degrees Celsius warming we're going to have without any younger people at the table contributing their priorities in these decisions when they're being made, because it is about youth. We're at the forefront, especially in the most affected areas, um, in the tropical areas in the global south, that these are the people growing up in this crisis that are affected by the economic fallout and the you know natural disasters, just the destruction of so many livelihoods, the degradation of land, not good access to clean drinking water, pandemics, I could go on and on. But so many of the decisions are happening by these people that are like at the end of their political career um, or that are not even from the global south. And so it's all about what the fate of the world is going to be, but it's happening without the voices and the actual decisions and the input of people that are affected by it. Right. 
And, and, you know, you mentioned it a few different times, like all the different ways of getting engaged and dealing with this global issue. You know, I think it's really uh, difficult or overwhelming for, for people who are, feel really hopeless um, about the state of our, our planet, especially younger people um, who are looking at it and thinking, darn, like that, that's my lifetime, right? When we're looking at those predictions of sea level rise or temperature increase and knowing that we'll have to deal with that, you know, as adults and, and things like that. And when I talk to a lot of people about climate, I feel like it feels too big, right? Too scary. A lot of people get overwhelmed by it, but I'm wondering kind of what your approach has been or what advice you might be able to offer to folks who are younger and looking to be more engaged. I mean, what you talked about here, what you're working on, you know, you live in Texas and you're working on, you know, global deep deforestation issues. And we don't even have a rainforest here in Texas. And I think that's something that when I've talked to Mianta in the past about, she's always trying to remind people like we're all connected, even though we, this is an Austin based organization, we're doing work all over the world. Um, I'm wondering if you can, yeah, share, share a little advice or insight for folks who are trying to figure out how they can play a role in this conversation that can feel so global. Yeah, that's a really good question and really important for a lot of younger people and people that are just suffering from a lot of climate anxiety. So my own path is that I started getting into like animal rights activism ever since I was really young because I just, you know, cared about animals. Um, I got into politics as a high schooler and then I realized that I, although I come from a natural sciences background in my family, I wanted to major in government um, because someone that knew a lot about science and kind of found politics distasteful because of how like how little they care about the environment and people's health and public safety and things like that um these kind of people should actually go into politics because if we don't then the only people left in the world of politics right. are going to be those who are not concerned by the exploitation of people on the planet so um i'm a senior at ut right and i'm studying plan two economics government irg and chinese yes i have five majors but there's a lot of overlap so it's not strange um and the way that I stay hopeful about climate is by kind of finding what I can actually do about something. And it doesn't have to be like your one true calling. You can always switch tracks, but just pick something and educate yourself about, about it to an absurd degree until your friends call you like a huge nerd, right? Because <laughs> in, in 2019, I was really lucky to go on this May Mester, which is a month long study abroad that UT offers to Costa Rica. Um, and it was called Land Use Issues in Rainforest Conservation. So um, I went with a group of like 20 other students and two professors and because Costa Rica is such a small country, we were able to take a bus all around. So every three days we were moving somewhere new. We spent so much time in um, like biological preserves, national parks, and like the dairy farms in the mountains and small coffee fincas and we toured a banana plantation and we visited the cloud forest, everything. And witnessing that and meeting the people there who I am still connected with, um, was really life-changing for me because I realized that there is so much in this world that is resilient, that is always going to like bounce back, that life thrives so much more easily than we think it does. We think that humans have like destroyed the planet, but humans can and do have a positive relationship with nature and with other people. And we just need to choose that this is what we're going to embody. So coming back from that study abroad, 
um, knowing suddenly like a crazy amount about rainforests. Um, I joined Rainforest Partnership in like the next summer by the time the pandemic had already started actually. So I also didn't meet Nyanta in person until we met at the airport on our way to London. <laughs> Although we're both from Austin, it was we had just been working completely virtual right. for the past year and a half. Um, and so there's a lot to be concerned about obviously, but there's also a lot of science which um, the more we share it, the more we understand. So um, there's like a reading that's called The Economist's Guide to Climate Change Science. And it's like a 30 page paper, but it does a good job of laying out like what, what actually means, what actually um, is happening in terms of like atmospheric science and how to understand what a tipping point is and things like that. Because when people talk about tipping points with the Amazon or with global climate, they think it means like a tipping point to total extinction. That's not true. It means like a tipping point to a different stable equilibrium that's just going to look very, very different from the world we have today. And we like the world we have today. So we're trying to not cross that tipping point. Um, and lastly, the other thing that kind of just powers myself is the genre of solar punk. So um, it's a optimistic utopian actual genre of speculative fiction and artwork and stuff. And it's kind of put up in contrast to steampunk and cyberpunk, which are historical or futuristic, but still dystopian in nature. So solar punk is a young and growing community of artists and writers um, and people who care a lot about their local politics and communities who are just working to make the place a greener, healthier, and more kind place. <laughs> And that's our show for today. If you want to learn more about climate action in Austin, be sure to stay tuned to our social media pages because we'll be continuing to share info about climate plans in both Austin and Travis County over the coming weeks. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. This show is hosted by me, Amy Sansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. And one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And that's our show for today. Thanks. Bye. Bye.